Well, as more and more people receive the vaccine and more COVID-era restrictions are lifted, many of us are starting to wonder what life will look like on the other side of the pandemic. I'm sure we've all grown accustomed to remote school and working from home, but nevertheless, we've all had far more Zoom meetings than we ever want ever again. I read that uh, during the pandemic, people continued to buy shirts and tops, but there was a drop in the sale of pants. Apparently, people were focused solely on how they looked from the chest up. But now, as we enter a new normal, it might be time to buy a new pair of slacks. It's probably been a while since you took a red eye to a business meeting or went on a vacation, probably even longer since you danced with a big group of sweaty people at a wedding. And we may have gotten used to a lighter social calendar. Perhaps we even like it. But I would suggest that we have missed out on a lot of those face-to-face -face interactions that are so key to human relationships, especially because even when we are face-to-face, -face, our faces have been, in the past, hidden by a protective mask. And so, as a result, we may find that uh, this limited social interaction over the last 15 months has led to new feelings of social anxiety. It may just be that we feel like our social skills have gotten a little rusty. It used to be that the ones who experienced post-isolation anxiety were limited to those who served time in the military or in prison or who did humanitarian aid work in some far-off distant place. But now, all of us are re-entering society at the same time. And people may respond differently to that. There may be some who rush right back into doing all the things they used to do and others might take their time and ease back in. As one author recently put it, a single, unemployed, medically vulnerable person who spent the entire pandemic alone might find the new normal more disorienting than a married, financially secure person living in a big apartment filled with extended family. But the fact is we're all a little out of practice when it comes to basic communication and especially conflict resolution. When we meet new people today, we're not exactly sure how we're supposed to greet one another. Is it a handshake or a hug? Is it a bow or a bump? We might try all four and see which one works. But I would suggest that we are all socially awkward now. And so it seems to me that as we enter this next phase, the question that is on the back of many of our minds is, how do we be human again? How do we be human again? And that sort of got me thinking, because in a way, that's sort of what the Bible is all about. Jesus not only shows us what a truly human life looks like, but the whole reason why he lived and died and rose again is to transform us, to change us, to make us fully human. And so what I would like to do is initiate a new sermon series today that will carry us over the next few weeks, which is focused precisely on this theme. How do we be human again? Now, uh, this series is intended to operate on a couple different planes. At one level, I want to address some of the common problems that we might face as we re-enter society. How do we handle our new anxiety, our anger, our conflict? How do we cultivate healthy relationships with one another? But at a deeper level, I'd like us to consider what do the scriptures have to tell us about how Jesus is, in fact, on a mission 
to make us human again, to make us our fullest, truest selves. And who is this series for? Well, it's for everybody. Every sermon series I write is really intended for everyone, but let me tell you specifically what I had in mind as I was piecing this together. On the one hand, for those who may not yet be Christians, I want to help reveal the heart of the Christian faith. You see, being a Christian is is not just a matter of believing certain truths, but it's actually discovering the difference that Jesus makes in our lived experience. He transforms us. He changes us. He helps us discover who we are truly intended to be in God's eyes. He changes you without eliminating your personality. He changes you by helping you become your truest self. And then I've also been thinking about those who are Christians, but Christians who are struggling to live out their identity in Jesus. And perhaps you've become a little bit cynical. Maybe you think, well, change isn't actually possible. I've, I've been there, I've tried that, and it didn't work. And so perhaps this series in a new way might show you how real transformation takes place in our life, how we can experience deep, lasting change in and through Jesus Christ and his work in our lives. And then thirdly, I was thinking about leaders, specifically community group leaders, the people who are on the ground and and working most closely to care for those within the community of the church. And I'm hoping that this series will paint a picture for you of what it is that you should be looking for and seeking to foster and cultivate within your own life as well as within the lives of those who have been entrusted into your care. So let's, uh, let's jump in. How to be human again. And we'll start today by considering the image we bear, the problem we face, and the renewal we need by focusing on a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So listen as I read verses 15 through 18. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true, and it's given to us in love. So let me begin with my central thesis, which is that Jesus is on a mission to make us human again. And I would suggest that this is, in fact, one of the central themes of the Bible that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. If you open up to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, you'll discover that God decides to create human beings in his likeness and image. Beginning at verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, as you can imagine, a lot of ink has been spilt over the centuries as people have debated what exactly, what precisely does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, most people would say that we reflect God's image through a feature or a constellation of features that human beings share with God, such as personality or 
creativity or rationality, spirituality, the ability to reason, the ability to make moral decisions. Some assume that we, we reflect God's image because we are relational, as God is inherently relational. Uh, God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is, in his very essence, a community of persons. So perhaps we reflect something of who God is when we live in loving community with one another. Now, I think all of these things are true. They all capture an aspect of the truth. But I'd like to give you something different to think about. Because there are recent scholars who have argued that the word image, especially in the ancient Near East, had a very specific meaning and connotation. When the author of Genesis uses the word image, he would have been thinking of a three-dimensional sculpture, like an icon or a statue. And, and these images would have been prevalent in the ancient Near East. Often they would have represented a god. And this was not an exact replica, but it captured the likeness in some way of that god, of that realm, or that sphere of life. And many people believed that the spirit of a god dwelt within its image or statue. Now, as a result, an image could therefore function as a representative or a substitute for that god. And it was also customary to think of a king in any particular region as being a representative of the god. And the logic there was that, well, kings rule, but the gods are the ultimate rulers. So if there's any king in place, well, that king must be ruling on behalf of the god he or uh, the God that he serves. And so these images would have been set up. An image, a three-dimensional sculpture of the God or perhaps of the king would have been set up even in the most remote parts of a territory in order to remind everyone everywhere of who was really in charge of that particular area of life. So let me give you a, a modern-day example of this. Several years ago, when Richard Daly was still the mayor of Chicago, I flew into Chicago's O'Hare Airport, and as soon as I walked out of the airplane and through the gate, I was greeted by a massive banner that said, Mayor Richard M. Daly welcomes you to Chicago. And I thought, wow, that's nice. And then I made my way to baggage claim, and then once again I was greeted by another sign, Mayor Richard M. Daly welcomes you to Chicago. And then I noticed that even the little electronic panel on the escalators had a sign that said, Mayor Richard M. Daly welcomes you to Chicago. So I got my bags and got into the taxi, and then there it is again in the taxi cab, Mayor Richard M. Daly welcomes you to Chicago. And then as you're making your way out of the airport, there's one final billboard over the highway, Mayor Richard M. Daly welcomes you to Chicago. Chicago. See, the point is, you could not fly into Chicago without, without knowing who claimed to be in charge of that town. And you see, the author of Genesis is telling us something amazing about God. The images of the ancient Near East might have been representative of the local gods, but God has done something even better because he has made us human beings his image bearers. We are his representatives, and, and he fills the whole world. He fills all of creation with human beings so that no matter where you look, everyone everywhere would see the image of the God, and we would know, we would know who is in charge of all of creation. And that is why in the very same breath that Genesis tells us that God created us in his image, 
He also tells us that God has given us dominion over creation. You see, God has called us to be responsible stewards of this world. He shares his rule with us. And here's the best part. In the ancient Near East, only kings, only kings, only men could represent a God. But in Genesis, it's everyone, every human being, regardless of race, class, gender, or age. Every human being bears God's image and shares in God's rule. We're all kings who are called to exercise dominion over creation. We're all priests who are meant to represent God's love and presence in the world around us. So what happened? What happened? What went wrong? Well, Genesis goes on to tell us that when human beings rebelled, when we turned against God and went our own way, something happened. Something was lost. We lost something of our humanity, and as a result, now we are less than what God originally intended us to be. Our humanity in some way has been impaired as a result of human sin. We no longer experience life the way that it's meant to be lived, and we fail to become all that God has destined us to be. And so what has happened, therefore, to God's image? What has happened to God's image in us if we have now fallen into this state of sin and misery? Well, it's important here to maintain the right balance, and perhaps the best way to put it is to say that the image of God in us has been defaced, but it has not been erased. It has been defaced, but it has not been erased. You see, even in our sin, we continue to bear God's image, but it does not shine as brightly as it once did. And we know that from passages like Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 is written after humanity's fall into sin, and the author goes on to explain why human beings must not murder one another. So Genesis prohibits murder, but why? What's the rationale? And the rationale is that we must not murder one another because explicitly every human being is made in the image of God. You see the same kind of logic in the New Testament as well. James chapter 3 verse 9 warns against the dangers of the tongue. And James tells us that with the very same tongue, we use the very same tongue to bless our Lord and Father, but also to curse people made in the likeness of God. So we continue to bear God's image, but that image has been diminished. It has been obscured. We bear God's image. Nothing can ever take that away. That is the basis of our dignity, our value, and our worth. That is why life is sacred, but this image has been defaced. So you could think of uh, an old antique mirror that is now covered with smudges and, and blotches. It's still a mirror. It still reflects light, but more dimly than it used to. And if that mirror is going to function properly, what needs to happen? What needs to be dusted off? It needs to be cleaned. It needs to be polished. And essentially, that's the message of the Scriptures as well. We still bear God's image, but that image has been distorted, and it needs to be renewed. So that's the ultimate question. How can the image of God be renewed in us? And here I would say that we often suffer from a failure of imagination. So let me see if I can stir up your sense of wonder. One of my favorite books as a kid, one of the books that I love reading to my children today is The Velveteen Rabbit. 
You know this story? A young boy receives a, a stuffed rabbit for Christmas made of velvet and sawdust. But this velveteen rabbit feels a little insecure. It feels insignificant and commonplace compared to the other toys in the nursery, especially the mechanical wind-up toys. And so one day, the velveteen rabbit asks a question to the wise skin horse, the oldest toy there in the nursery. And the velveteen rabbit asks, what is real? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked? or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Well, progressively, the velveteen rabbit becomes the boy's favorite toy. So wherever the boy goes, the rabbit goes. And as a result of this, the rabbit does become shabbier and shabbier, but his heart leaps when one day he hears the boy insist that his rabbit is not a toy. No, he is real. But then the boy comes down with scarlet fever. His face is flushed, his skin is hot. But in the midst of his illness, what does he want closest to him by his side at all times? His velveteen rabbit who snuggles in bed with him for weeks until he recovers. But upon recovering, the doctor insists that the whole nursery has to be disinfected. And that rabbit, above all, has got to be burned because that rabbit has become nothing but a bag of germs. And so the velveteen rabbit is thrown on top of a sack that contains old picture books and is taken outside where it awaits the fire. And there, the velveteen rabbit shivers. He was shivering a little, little, for he had always been used to sleeping in a proper bed. And by this time, his coat had worn so thin and threadbare from hugging that it was no longer any protection at all. He thought of those long, sunlit hours in the garden, how happy they were, and a great sadness came over him. He seemed to see them all pass before him, each more beautiful than the other. He thought of the skin horse, so wise and gentle, and all that he had been told him. Of what use was it to be loved and lose one's beauty and become real if it all ended like this? And a tear, a real tear, trickled down his shabby velvet nose and fell to the ground, and then a strange thing happened. A flower begins to grow where the tear had fallen, and out of the blossom steps a fairy. And the fairy proceeds to transform the velveteen rabbit into a real rabbit. 
She explains, I take care of all the playthings that the children have loved when they are old and worn out and the children don't need them anymore. Then I come and take them away with me and turn them into real. Wasn't I real before? Asked the little rabbit. You were real to the boy, the fairy said, because he loved you. But now you shall be real to everyone. You see, Jesus has come to make us real. You might say, well, that's just a story. But I would say, I think one of the reasons why we find fairy tales so strangely compelling is because they point us to the true fairy tale. J.R.R. Tolkien once said, there is no tale men would rather believe and find was true than the tale of the gospel. Jesus has come to make us real. And this really is one of the keys to unlock the Bible. He has come to make us real. And even though we might suffer, it is his love for us that makes us real. More real, perhaps, than we ever even knew was possible. He came to renew God's image in us. And that's why I do not think it is an accident that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the image. Literally in Greek, the icon. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God the Father cannot be seen because God is spirit. No one has or ever will see God. God makes himself known by revealing his glory, which you could think of as the outward shining of God's inward beauty. But Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, makes the invisible God visible to us. In a similar vein, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And so if we want to know what God is like, we do not need to look any farther than Jesus. Jesus is that three-dimensional model of God in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He is the one who perfectly reflects God's image, represents God's rule, and fulfills God's calling to exercise responsible dominion over the world that God has made. And so when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at what a human life is truly supposed to be like. But the wonder of it all, the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus, the one who perfectly bore God's image, was himself defaced and disfigured on the cross. Isaiah 52 tells us that his appearance was marred beyond all human semblance, beyond human form. So you see what happened on the cross? Jesus, who perfectly bears God's image, was marred so that our marred image might be renewed. And Paul, therefore, goes on to say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, Jesus' central task is to renew God's image in us and to set us free to be our truest selves. And the question is, how does that work? How does that actually take place in our lives? And, and that's what brings me very briefly to this passage today from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, there's a lot going on in this little passage, but let me try to unpack it for you so you can understand what Paul's trying to get across. 
See, Paul is drawing a contrast between the old covenant established by Moses and the new covenant established by Jesus. And you may recall that when Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the law, the Torah from God, his face began to shine. His face became radiant because he was talking face-to-face with God himself. Moses' face shines because he is speaking to God and beholding his glory. And so when he comes down from the mountain, what do the people do? They freak out. That's the technical theological term. They freak out. They're afraid. They can't handle this, this beaming face. And so what does Moses proceed to do? He puts on a protective mask. He puts on a veil so that the people will not have to look at his radiant, beaming face. But whenever Moses would go back into the tabernacle to speak with God, he would remove the veil. There's no need to wear a veil when you're speaking directly to God and beholding his glory. And so now Paul uses that image of of Moses in the Old Testament in order to draw an analogy. And he says that for us, even today, because of the hardness of our hearts, Whenever Moses is read, and and that's just a shorthand way of referring to the Scriptures. Whenever the Scriptures are read, there's a veil over our hearts. We we, we fail to truly understand what the Bible is all about. We, we, We fail to see the true significance and meaning of the Bible because there's a veil that lies over our hearts. And then here Paul extends the metaphor because he says, but when anyone turns to the Lord, and that word turn, could be a way of referring to repentance or conversion. When anyone turns to the Lord Jesus in faith, the veil is lifted. The veil is lifted. And so what are the implications of that? Number one, you will never be able to understand the true meaning of the Bible unless you turn to Jesus as Lord. You'll never be able to understand the true meaning of the Bible unless you turn to Jesus in faith. You see, most people think the Bible is a book of rules. It's a list of do's and don'ts. And if you do the do's and if you don't do the don'ts, well, then God will accept you, bless you, and make your life go well. So people think it's a book of rules, or other people think it's a book of virtue. You're supposed to follow the positive examples and avoid the negative. Now, it's true the Bible does contain some rules, and the Bible does contain both positive and negative moral exemplars. But if you think that that is primarily what the Bible is about, you will never understand it. Because the Bible is not a book of rules. It is not ultimately a book of virtue. It is a book of Christ. The whole purpose of the Bible is to point you to Jesus. It's not about who you are and what you must do in order to make God happy so that he loves you. No, it's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done for you by his grace in order to renew God's image in you. And so you will never understand the true meaning of the Bible unless you turn to Jesus in faith. There were old commentators who used to say that in England... Every path, every lane, every road, not in isolation, but linking up with one another, will eventually lead you to London. And in a similar way, every verse, every chapter in the Bible, not in isolation, but linking up with one another, will eventually lead you to Jesus. Jesus is the center of the Bible. Jesus is what the Bible is all about. And Jesus is on a mission to make you fully human again. But then secondly... If you turn to Jesus in faith, then he will progressively transform you more and more into his image. And this is the most amazing part. 
Because here Paul places us in the exact same position as Moses. The exact same position as Moses on the mountain speaking face to face with God and directly beholding his glory. And Paul's saying now because of Jesus, because Jesus is the perfect image of God, when you approach Jesus in faith, you behold the glory. You see God for who he really is, and by simply beholding him, seeing him in his greatness, his power, his love, his mercy, his beauty, you are progressively transformed in his image. You will begin to shine. You will begin to beam. You will begin to reflect his radiance. When we turn to him in faith, the veil over our hard hearts is lifted. We see the fullness of God's glory in the face of Jesus. And as a result, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, Jesus restores what was once lost. He remakes us in his image. He makes us fully human again. Now, I told you this was what the whole Bible is about from Genesis to Revelation. And I wasn't lying. Because if you scroll forward to Revelation chapter 5, there you read that the seer John peers into the throne room of heaven and he sees the throne of God and the Lamb and 24 elders representing the believers of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're gathered there around God's throne and they share in his rule, which is what we are made for. That's our destiny, that's our calling, that's our vocation. To share in God's rule, they receive crowns. But what do they do with their crowns? They cast them down before the Lord in worship. Because it's not about them. And then they sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, that's our vocation, a kingdom of priests. We're kings who share in God's rule. We're priests who represent him to one another. The problem is that we have no idea what God has in store for us. We suffer from a failure of imagination. C.S. Lewis said that you have never met a mere mortal. There are no ordinary people. Even the dullest, most interesting person you meet today may become a creature who, if you saw him now, you would be tempted to bow down and worship. We really are just velvet and sawdust right now, longing to become real. But Lewis writes, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. Jesus renews us in the image of God. But what's our responsibility in this? This transformative process is a work of God's grace carried out by his Holy Spirit. We can't take any credit for it, but that doesn't mean that we are passive in the process. No, there's something that we're supposed to do. What is it? Behold the glory. Behold the glory. In everything you do, 
whether you read the Bible, every time you pray, every time you give, every time you serve, every time you worship, every time you listen to a sermon, every time you participate in the sacrament, you're supposed to behold the glory. What does this event, what is this circumstance, what does this person before me reveal to me about the person of Jesus? God is at work all around you, revealing his glory ultimately in and through the person and work of Jesus. So behold the glory, and you will be transformed into the same image. And that is how God makes us human again. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that we suffer from a failure of imagination. We have no idea what you have in store for us. And so we pray that you might help us to behold the glory revealed in Jesus so that we might be transformed progressively into his image from one degree of glory to another. Make us human again, we pray. Amen.